Well, good morning. Welcome again to One Ancient Hope. My name is Matt. If I haven't been able to meet you, I am the interim pastor here. And we are journeying through Philippians for Lent. And you will, if you get to participate online or in person, have heard the entirety of Philippians read aloud uh, by the end of this season. Today we are in the beginning of chapter 2. Oh, man. Well, yesterday afternoon, uh, Sarah and I, we dropped off our son Shepard at his grandma's house in Cedar Rapids. And then we were able to have the afternoon uh, to ourselves, just a few hours. So we decided we went to downtown Cedar Rapids. We got coffee and went on a nice long walk, kind of exploring everything. At 45 degrees, it felt like summer. There was a moment where I was just in my flannel. I took my jacket off. It was really nice. We were walking around, and we were talking about uh, this next season of our life, you know, about our future coming up. And Sarah started sharing this list. She shared this list of sort of needs and wants for this next season, you know, kind of hopes for the next season. And they were things like, well, it'd be great if we lived somewhere where there was proximity to nature. It'd be great if we lived somewhere where there was walkability. It'd be great if we could afford to have insurance. It'd be great if uh, we could afford to go on a date once a month. These sort of things. Nothing luxurious, nothing um, greedy by any stretch of the word. Yet, as I was listening to this list, I felt uh, anxiety kind of bubbling up in my chest, and it felt like there was this uh, heavy cloak of distress on my shoulders sort of weighing me down. And it was strange because, you know, these were all things that I want as well, and they weren't that intense. But as she was sharing her list, in my mind, I started thinking about my list. Very similar, but perhaps a few other things that she didn't have on her list, and she had some things that I didn't have on my list. And it got to the point where internally it starts to feel impossible. How could we actually get all of these things that we want? And so questions start racing around in my mind. Uh, what if I can't find a job that pays enough to have these things? Is there even a church job anywhere that would pay enough to have all these things? Do I even deserve these things? Is there enough? That's what kept, kept coming up in my head. Is there actually enough to go around? And what had come upon me in this moment was this attitude of scarcity. It was all I could think about. Uh, we'll never be able to find a situation where all of our needs are met, I started thinking. There's just not enough to go around. So now what was supposed to be this nice afternoon walk had turned into this sort of internal battle with despair for me. Is the center of the universe... Consum consumptive? Is it consuming? 
or is it generative? Is it entropy or is it creativity? Is it a sort of chasm of despair or is it actually a fountain of love? Is it scarcity or abundance? And this is one of those questions that, uh, you know, I imagine where we answer it is actually different than maybe what we actually believe deeper than what we might say on the surface. And yet it affects nearly everything about the way we live our lives and conduct our relationships. Is the center of the universe a chasm or a fountain of love? Paul is concerned for the Philippian church. He has this deep love. And in his words, you hear this, this sort of soul connection that he has for them as their one-time pastor. And as he's sitting, chained up in prison, unsure if he'll be released, his concern is not for himself, but for the Philippian church. He's concerned about the persecution that's coming from the outside, right? He's concerned about what that's going to do. And yet he's also concerned about some division within, some quarreling and divisiveness that's existing. He says, the external persecution and suffering will either destroy the church or cause it to flourish. And the quarreling within will either divide the community, thereby revoking any sense of witness that they have to the gospel, or be an opportunity to become a more united and truly Christ-like community. There's these two crucibles of external and internal suffering that's happening in the community. And last week, we talked about how cultivating a sort of holy indifference allows us to experience joy in what may be external persecution or suffering. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony populated by veteran Roman soldiers. The church, by proclaiming Jesus as Lord and not Caesar, was essentially in opposition to the Roman way of life. So there was plenty of external persecution going on. Yet even in the midst of this external persecution, which Paul sort of symbolizes by talking about his own chains, there was still joy. And Paul shows how there's still joy. He even says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So now in chapter 2, Paul turns his concern to the internal dissension and lack of unity in the Philippian church. And Paul begins his appeal to them by saying in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... If there is any. And that can sound kind of harsh, I feel like. Uh, it almost comes off like a spouse saying, 
if you had any love for me, you would do the dishes without asking. You know, it can come off sort of uh, guilt-inducing, shaming. Is Paul simply inviting the Philippians to go on a guilt trip with him? Not at all. Paul is using this language to sort of cut past the intellect and get at the heart of the matter. He's appealing to their hearts. He's appealing to the Philippians' hearts. But he's actually not questioning if they've experienced these things. He knows they've experienced encouragement in Christ. He knows they've experienced comfort from love. He was a part of their community, and he saw these sort of things happening. So he's not beginning his appeal with guilt and doubt, but actually with a reminder of their reality. In fact, that word if in Greek is oftentimes translated since. And in other translation of scripture, you may heard these verse as since. So it'd be more like since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since you participate in the spirit, he's assuming these things are true. George Hunsinger, who is a, a theologian at uh, Princeton Seminary, he says it this way, and this is really important as we begin. He says, this is not a move from possibility to actuality, but one from actuality to possibility. In other words, you have participation in the spirit, so it's possible for you to live as Christ is, is where we're going to get. But anyways, the mindset, he says, that is already theirs in Christ Jesus needs to be reclaimed ever anew. It encounters them not as an ideal possibility, but as a concrete reality, one in which they already participate. It is not something to be constructed, but something to be appreciated. It is a gift before it is a task. It means becoming what they already are. And this is important because it means that Paul begins with a reminder of their reality as those in Christ. And then he continues in verse 2. And he invites them to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In Philippians 1, remember, Paul talks about how he prays for that church with joy and thanksgiving. That's how he remembers them and prays about them. Even though he is in prison, even though there is external persecution and suffering, he's able to rejoice about what God is doing in Philippi. Yet, this joy is incomplete. It's not full there's sort of room still in the cup. It cannot be complete if the Philippian church is in schism or disunity. The joy is only complete if they can come together in mind and in love. And then in their unity, Paul says, my joy will be complete. He continues in verses three and four about how this can happen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I have to tell you, this is a different way of being in the world than comes natural to us. The tendency that's deeply ingrained in the modern psyche is actually to climb the ladder of selfish ambition at the expense of others. Even more so as Americans were taught from our youth that we are, quote, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then much modern social and psychological theory is indebted to the notion that members of the human species, like all other animals, are involved in a relentless quest to dominate others in order to survive. So if you combine the pursuit of happiness with survival of the fittest, there's inevitably not enough happiness to go around. So in order for me to get mine, you can't have yours. This kind of becomes deeply ingrained in us. It's hard to identify at times, but it's there. Which means that we enter the church with the belief that we deserve to be made happy, but coupled with the notion that our pursuit of happiness at the expense of others is inevitable. There's just not enough to go around. My happiness at the expense of another's is just how it is. It's how the world works. For some to have, others must have not. And if those are the two options, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure I have. I don't want to be one of the have-nots. It's impossible to be humble and united if we exist in this natural scarcity mindset. And Paul knows this is our default. So he brings in the sort of theological big guns. One commentator says it's as if he uses a cannon to go rabbit hunting, right? They're just quarreling with one another, and he goes into this giant Christological poem that's about to happen. Five verse, verse 5 reads, Have this mind among yourselves, <clears throat> which is yours in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul is saying this mind of Christ, it's already yours. This is already a reality. This is already something you participate in. It's not something that you have to sort of plan how you're going to achieve or how in the heck am I going to get the mind of Christ? I got to get that thing. It's already yours. But you do have to choose to defer to the mind of Christ, the thinking, the way of Christ over your own. Now, these next six verses, they make up a poem. Some have thought that it, this was this hymn that Paul brings in to Philippians, and he's sort of quoting from this ancient song that already existed. Others think maybe it's a song that Paul himself wrote. And still others say it's just a poem that 
Paul wrote and is using as part of his appeal to their hearts. He's trying to get at something deeper than their intellect, and nothing does that quite like poetry. Whichever it is, it has this sort of gravitational pull that the rest of Philippians actually revolves around. So if you're wondering how to approach Philippians, you might approach it as this series of essays that Paul writes to the church that all revolve around this poem. They all kind of connect to it. They all get their meaning from this particular poem. He says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's a simple pattern in the poem that Paul invites us to imitate. And it sort of goes like this. Uh, privilege, emptied out servanthood, and then exaltation. And there's a lot of power in this particular pattern because Paul could have just said, do you guys know that girl, Rebecca, let's say making up a person's name, she's a part of our community in Philippi, and she loves people really well. She's humble. She's a servant. Uh, she gives of her time and energy and finances. Uh, be like her. He could have just said that. He could have said, here's your example. Be like her. But the power comes sort of in the, the pattern, the up and downness of it all is where a lot of the meaning comes in. It's not just, here's a servant. You should be like a servant. Imitate them. It might feel like that is all he's saying, but it's not. The first step in the pattern is actually recognizing privilege. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. It says Jesus was in the form of God before coming, before his incarnation, right? He has preeminent equality with God, but chooses not to keep a tight grasp on it. This is a trick to humility. If you want to become a person who's sincerely humble, if we want to become a people who are sincerely humble, to be a united church family, we have to be aware of our privilege. Now, for me, that privilege is manifold. There's many things. One, I, I'm a church leader, so I have a, a sort of authority that I've been given by you, and, and that's a privilege I have to be aware of. I'm also a white male in a mostly white culture, a predominantly white culture that includes some privileges. I'm educated. I'm a citizen. 
I have family and friends to fall back on in times of need. These are some of the privileges that I need to recognize and be aware of before moving to the next step of the pattern. What are some of the privileges in your life? What are some of the gifts, some of the things that you have? You don't need to be guilty or or ashamed of them, but you do have to be aware of them. True humility cannot exist without self-awareness. It's just a sort of bypassing at that point. And this is why Paul also said earlier in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He could have just said, look only to the interests of others. Or Jesus could have simply said, love your neighbor. Instead of, Love your neighbor as yourself. If you aren't self-aware at all, it's impossible to truly love others. If you can't recognize any privilege in your life, it will be impossible to give anything away in servanthood because you won't think you have anything to give. You can't give away what you don't have. Jesus comes in the form of God. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And the second step in the pattern of this poem is emptied out servanthood. This is the life that Paul invites the Philippians into. It's a life that looks like Jesus's. This is a a poured out life. Later in this chapter, Paul says he pours out his life as an offering. It's a life that is no longer grasping at the privileges we have, but willing to lay them aside, giving. And this kind of life is only actually possible with the final step of the pattern, which is exaltation. So I think oftentimes we spend too much time talking about the servanthood piece, which allows everyone to leave uh, perhaps feeling more guilty about not being humble than actually being empowered to be humble. And so the third step of the pattern in this poem is exaltation. I mean, listen to what happens to Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Paul is saying, have this mind among yourselves, the mind of Christ, It doesn't end with the death of Christ on the cross. In other words, consider yourself a bunch of servants who are poured out, empty, dead, lifeless. It's this mind among yourselves as well. It's the promise of a future exaltation that makes present servanthood possible. 
we have no hope of actually living emptied out lives of service if we don't believe we will be filled again. This gets back at my opening story. As Sarah was sharing her desires and needs for the future, I was struck with anxiety and hopelessness because at that moment, you know, I didn't believe that the God at the center of the universe was a fountain of endless love. I had turned away from a belief in his abundance to a scarcity mindset. It's impossible to live selflessly, creatively, gospelly in a scarcity mindset. And so basically what happened in the conversation is I just told Sarah that. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm having a moment of disbelief. I just don't believe that there's actually enough, that we could live in a world where there's actually enough. I feel like there's not enough. So either we're going to have to compromise on our needs and wants, like I can have some of mine, you can have some of yours. And look, maybe we will. But I had to confess that to her. And so the end of our walk, we sat in the car, and before driving up to pick up Shepard, uh, we spent some time in prayer. And I just confessed that to God. And I just said, Lord, I need to believe again in your abundance. I need to believe that you actually have more than enough and want to give it to your children. And the truth was, I couldn't serve her. I couldn't serve Sarah. I couldn't love her well as a husband if I was believing that there's not enough. I'm not going to be a good uh, servant to her if that's sort of the ultimate reality that I'm operating out of. Because I'll need to make sure I get mine. And then maybe she can have some. There's this uh, ancient Latin hymn. It's from the 6th century, and it's about the cross of Christ. And it concludes with the exclamation, Fons salutis trinitas. I'm sure you know what that means. You all speak Latin, right? It is Trinity, the fountain of salvation. You see, at the center of the universe is the Trinitarian God of love. Bonaventure, a 13th century philosopher and theologian, he called the Trinity the fountain fullness of love. The only way that Christ is actually able in that, in that poem, in that truth about him, to, to choose to self-empty, to choose to give completely of himself, to become a slave and a servant, is because he knows he will be filled by the Father. It's not emptiness just as the end. So picture this. This is the way Bonaventure talks about it. Picture sort of uh, three buckets on a water wheel, right, that's spinning. Each bucket fills and then empties out, then swings back and is filled again. The Father empties into the Son, nothing held back. The Son into the Spirit, Nothing held back. The spirit into the father. Nothing held back. The reason they can empty themselves out is they know they will be filled again. The trinity at the center of the universe is infinite love. 
The Trinity is the most perfect picture of relationship. Maybe you, like me, have moments where you live in a scarcity mindset. A scarcity model where there's never enough. Not enough food, not enough money, not enough security, health care, not enough mercy to go around. If this is the case, you can't risk letting go because you're not sure you'll be refilled. If you're protecting yourself, if you're securing your own image and identity, then you're still holding on. You remain full of yourself, which, by the way, is never a compliment when you tell someone that person is full of themselves, right? The other thing we say, people are full of blank. It's not a positive thing. Being full of yourself is the opposite of the way that Jesus lived. It's the opposite of the life of joy and abundance that he invites us into. But you'll never be able to empty yourself if you believe there's not enough. In fact, if you are participating in fasting this Lent and sort of operating underneath the surface is this belief of scarcity, that there's not enough, fasting is going to be a miserable experience for you. It will not be a life-giving experience. It will be punishment and torture. Stop doing it. But here's the thing, right? You don't have to live empty. Fasting, again, is choosing to abstain from a good thing for the sake of being filled with a better thing, with the God of abundance. You're not being told to empty yourself to remain empty, but to be filled. The pattern goes like this, right? Privilege, emptied out servanthood, and exaltation. Filled to the point of overflowing. Up, down, up, like a wave. And this, friends, is the pattern of Paul's life. It's the pattern of the whole book of Philippians. It's the pattern of Lent. If you remember, just three weeks ago, we celebrated Transfiguration Sunday. This Sunday where Jesus is revealed in luminous beauty and glory on top of the mountain with Moses and Elijah. He's revealed in the form of God. His privilege as God. But then, how's the story go? We get to Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. A day to remember that we are from dust and shall return to dust. We begin emptying our lives out of distractions and lesser goods so that we can once again focus our time and energy on that which truly and ultimately matters. We become servants once again. And then as we approach the cross on Good Friday, 
We see the completely empty, humbled God hanging lifeless on a cross. And we sit in the silent darkness of Holy Saturday. Emptied out. But we awake with that dawn of Easter and we experience afresh the wonder and glory of the resurrected King Jesus who ascends to his exalted throne. This is the pattern of Lent because ultimately it's the pattern of the gospel. It's the pattern of Jesus himself. Jesus says towards the end of his ministry in the gospel of Matthew 23 verses 11 and 12, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Christian life is servanthood and emptying. But it is emptying that is to be filled with hope, joy, glory, and the very presence of God himself. Humility becomes glory in this poem. Suffering becomes joy. It's impossible to read Philippians and not be confronted by the theme of joy. It's all over the book. And it's not a sort of superficial joy that evaporates at the first adversity. It's a joy that goes hand in hand with servanthood. And it sings in the face of death itself. Suffering becomes joy. Empty becomes full. And death, well, death becomes resurrection. Amen. Paul is showing us how Jesus was willing to let go of privilege, to let go of equality with God. Again, I want to read verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He empties himself out. The word theologians talk about there is kenosis, self-emptying. And it's this big theological concept, but if you want a particular physical image of self-emptying, it looks like this, actually. It looks like communion, like Eucharist, like the Lord's Supper. It's about receiving. It was through grasping in the garden right? Grasping in the garden that the world fell apart. And it's through self-emptying in the garden, this time Gethsemane, that ultimately leads to Calvary, that the world is being put back together. Through grasping, it falls apart. Through receiving, it's put back together. So this morning, as you approach the table. Remember that as a Christian, you do not take communion. 
Try and refrain from using that language. I'm excited we get to take communion today. Friends, no, 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 no. You do not grasp at the bread and the cup, claiming it as your own. You receive. You receive with empty, open hands. And there is always enough.